All right, everyone, we're trying something new today. A lot of uh, podcasts and crypto focus really on either guest interviews or roundups. Uh, but what they kind of miss are these timeless, these classic conversations that, you know, you could pull it up three months from now or six months from now and go back to it and re-listen to that. And I think you get that with some of the guest episodes, but maybe not with some of the news and the roundup conversations. And we're going to try to bridge that gap with this potentially little alpha here, potentially new show that we're doing. So you're going to hear uh, Tom Shaughnessy from Delphi, uh, Ryan Zur from uh, X Polychain, principal and venture partner, now running Vine Ventures and Dialectic. And of course, we got Santi holding it down. So I will not be on this. Uh, super excited to have Ryan, Tom and Santi doing the show with us. We don't even have a name for it yet. We're just ripping it. So if you guys like it, uh, tweet out, you know, YouTube comments, you know the deal. Um, and let us know if you like it or if... Uh, you did not enjoy the conversation. So without further ado, Ryan, Tom, and Santi. While we've seen a washout, uh, you know, a trough of disillusionment broadly in the NFT space, we see this pocket of really fine digital artists having pockets of success. And we see what we're seeing on the ground day to day is that global museums are leaning in to where the NFT community has left slack. So some of the biggest buyers right now of CryptoPunks, of really amazing, like fine digital art from like Rafiq and Mike and, and others um, have been global museums. Like that is, when you think about that, like that is mind blowing. The fact that like the people taking up Slack right now are, you know, the M pluses and the MoMAs and the Pompidou's and, and like really like substantial cultural institutions, cultural gatekeepers. Hey everyone, welcome to a new show. Uh, we don't have a name for it yet, but uh, Santiago and Ryan are close friends and uh, we recorded two of the most listened to podcasts I've ever done with them. So we thought it's worth coming together and seeing if we could do a, a show together. What's going on guys? How you doing bud? Hey Tom. Yeah, great to be here and let's let's dive in. Let's riff on this. Let's do it. Um, yeah. Santi, you want to give your quick overview? I don't know who I am these days. I guess, uh, you know, I'm a uh, long time in the space. Uh, obviously, uh, I've now turned my attention to education after I left Parify. You know, Parify, we were one of the first kind of funds doing just a individual strategy, which is DeFi, uh, before it was a thing. And kind of uh, before that, I was just angel investing in the space. And I love that kind of DNA of just being really close with teams. And sometimes in crypto, it is a very emerging asset class. And so having the flexibility, Ryan, you as well, you, you just manage your own capital. We've both been through the, we've done the fund and now we both now manage kind of our own capital. And, and I really enjoy that because, um, you know, crypto is sometimes, you know, it's difficult as an institutional investor to do certain things like buy NFTs or buy or get into yield farming, if you will, or do some of these strategies. And it's just a very emerging asset class. And so, um, I'm still very actively investing and, and, but one of the key priorities for me is just raising the bar for the level of discourse, you know, be what I like to describe is I think in crypto, it serves you well to be highly curious, but also highly skeptical. You constantly have to have to question things. And, and I think, uh, yeah, that's kind of, uh, hopefully what we try to do here is just elevate that bar and, and raise and, and have a honest, open discussion of the things that are happening in crypto and things that we're both, all three of us are seeing because we get to see so much um, on the investing side and just generally. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point and something that um, in in the decade that I've, I've been in crypto, uh, has tr I've tried to make a defining 
feature of, of my process of thinking through things from, from first principles of, you know, getting excited and getting conviction around completely novel uh, ideas that you want to see for the intellectual curiosity of it. You know, whether it's like Ethereum or, or, or MakerDAO or in recent years with, with NFTs and Plater and Gaming with Axie and, and, and other things, it, you know, the best investments that, that I've made over the years have always been something where what compelled me to do it was the intellectual curiosity of just wanting to pay to see the river um, and, and see the story unfold. Uh, and, and thinking through uh, with an independent mind uh, from first principles perspective uh, of like what could be uh, if you use these important primitives uh, that, you know, cryptid native values offer us um, is something that has been incredibly rewarding um, and my life's passion. Yeah. I like your point on the intellectual side, Ryan. I, I think I was thinking about this the other day after a couple of years investing in the space, it gets pretty easy to, just take the boring route, like, you know, do all the deals every fund is in, not really care. Um, it's easy, it's easy money, it's easy, you know, tweets, stuff like that. But it's just so intellectually boring and excruciating to not have an opinion or a view. Um, and I think that's hard to stay non-consensus over a long period of time. So definitely like that. We've seen all these emerging trends over time that don't look like, uh, like the last one, right? You know, you saw um, capital formation trend with ICOs in 17. And then, uh, and then from there, DeFi summer and this idea of like, uh, of decentralized debt, uh, and AMMs being able to, to offer yielding opportunities. And, you know, from there we see, you know, we see Plater and gaming emerge, which was, I think the first like non-speculative use case and digital scarcity for, for digital artists emerge uh, with NFTs. And and those are like, those are always really, really different. Um, you know, throughout, throughout it, we've seen a, a common thread of, um, of infrastructure and value accruing to the infrastructure layer. Um, but I find myself like, you know, to your point, somewhat, um, exhausted, like, like, for example, like how many layer two proposals are there right now? Or like hybrid layer two, layer one, you know, natively integrated with Ethereum, modular, some level of thinking on zero knowledge. Like how many are, are there out there right now? Like it's certainly in the hundreds. Um, and sort of trying to sift through that is, is somewhat exhausting versus trying to find like the next real trend in the space, whether that's social or whether that's, um, you know, something else that we have that we're not even thinking about yet. It's a good point. Like, I feel like after ECC, there's a kind of general fatigue or, or criticism in the market of like how much infrastructure is enough in terms of the deployment of like the number of dollars have mostly gone to infrastructure. Um, and to your point, Tom, I mean, if you were to look back over the last, you know, 10 plus years, that's where the money, the real returns have been made, you could argue. Um, and so there's a natural tendency, I think, for people to keep deploying in the next infrastructure project. Um, and so the question is, like, at what point do you do you actually focus on apps? Um, you know, we are seeing, obviously, base is fairly interesting. 
if you think about the number of users that Coinbase has and it being a, a very kind of a, a hold handing experience for so many people that haven't been ready to venture into this world. And then you have an ecosystem of apps like Frentech, uh, if you not, you know, or, or, or the like where they get access to these applications. Um, but historically, I mean, I think most funds out there would rather deploy and continue to deploy infrastructure. Um, so I, I think other technological kind of revolutions went through this phase as well. Uh, but you have to wonder at some point we have to deliver beautiful products, apps that people want to use to really, you know, make this all worthwhile. And I think we'll get there. It's just a matter of what that is going to be to your point around gaming. You know, we've all three here believed in the category. A lot of people are now dismissive of how play to earn was like a thing that was like the, the stupidest thing out there. And a lot of these things, you know, people are critical of, but I, I'm constantly reminded that a lot of things in their first instantiation look really stupid, but then it's a second, third that with certain tweaks that actually, you know, really are how, how things kind of evolve. And so I think, uh, yeah, just a general comment on like infrastructure and, and, and applications. Like I, I, I don't think there's nothing you can do. I think the market will do what the market does and just put a shit to an extreme of continue to fund more L2s and more L1s. And, you know, it's just, you just kind of have to let the chaos reign and, you know, it'll kind of sort itself out in the long run. And in all of these categories, inevitably, you know, less than 5% will survive. And that's just the natural ebb and flow of, of venture markets. Yeah. Well, I mean, Frentech is a good example though, right? Like base started their own L2 spun out of Coinbase. Coinbase is like the most legit and trusted centralized brand of crypto in the world, I think, or, or one of the most. And, you know, the app is, I wouldn't say overly legit, but it's, it definitely speaks to uptake of, of the app itself. I don't know. Do we want to discuss like Frentech? Because like that's a change from infrastructure to the app level that we're kind of discussing. Do you, do, so Jago, do you, do you see that as like the next big app that onboards, you know, significant numbers of users into the space? Because that's really one of the things that I'm so concerned about uh, is that like, hey, like it's kind of the same group of us that it's always been like trading these coins back and forth to each other. What is the thing that's going to onboard like a real significant uptick in, in like real world users? Do you, do you see this as, as, as like the big breakthrough or what are your thoughts? No, no, definitely not. I mean, I haven't signed up for it, but I think from a number, for a number of reasons, I don't think it's right. Um, like mainstream app, first mainstream app. I may be wrong, but it's not like the email of, of this, category. I, I think, um, you know, I recently talked to the base team and one of the things that they're, one of the applications that is deploying is kind of this restaurant reward program, which to me feels like totally on the back end. Something that you embed yourself in a flow that is, you know, so many people are like, how many people day to day are thinking about speculating on the value of their friends? Like, no, it's one of the things that once people show you like, oh, some people might gravitate and be like, yeah, cool, I'm going to do that. But then they lose interest. And I think you're seeing that very quickly in trends, even just now. But when you think about much bigger categories, okay, everyone's going to dining out. And if you embed that with the incremental improvement of saying, hey, you're going to get these points, you're going to get NFTs of these restaurants, like, oh, that's pretty cool. And so you have an application that looks and feels very much like an open table, but with this 
added component of points and the gamification and the incentives. And I feel like that to me, it's, it's happening. It's, I forget the name of the team that's going to do this, but I'd much bet on, on that type of application, which is incremental. I get it. Yeah. Versus frantic, which is just very niche. It, it's no different than, than DeFi. And there's, to your point earlier, there's, there's a very discrete, small number of people that just think about that. And we're going to see the full hype, right? We're going to see celebrities and some sports folks come in there. But I struggle to see that as, as like the killer app. Yeah, the, yeah. The, I want to be proven the, wrong. I just don't believe in in, compens- in, in that as, aspect of Frenta. The only thing that I like, though, is like my thesis for base is very simple. I think you guys probably have a similar one, right? Like Coinbase has 100 million plus users, a zillion dollars, like an easy route to get that capital and that user base on chain through base is fantastic. And Frentech is up the alley of a consumer level app, uh, which is similar to the, the retail users that Coinbase has. So I think on the social user base fit, it's nice, but I'm with you in that. I think the app should have been waited. It, they should have waited a month to launch the app. Like it should have been launched with full functionality, like pictures, videos, the whole nine yards. It shouldn't have been as janky. And I think the bonding curve is messed up because you quickly price the entire mass market out after you get a couple dozen users and there's no fractionalized shares or keys that they're calling them. And I don't know. I think it's hard. So I'm with you. I don't think it's the end game, but I, I struggle to see like why they, I think they just should have waited and thought through the bonding curve and the features a little bit more before launching. I'll, I'll take the other side of this debate in that I'm not that excited about base because for me, at the infrastructure layer, financial incentivization sort of is the key killer use case. And so without, without a token, you're just going to have greater apathy. You're not going to have stickiness in your community. You know, there's no like buy-in there to base. There's just like your, your brand affinity to Coinbase, which isn't, isn't that strong. Um, and then further with, you know, with friend, um, or friend.tech, my issue is, you know, we're trying to build apps that, that onboard people, you know, to Santiago's point, it, it, they, the first successful use cases will be really specific apps that like solve a specific problem and are, are generally useful. And then they will generalize to like the generalized social platform. We won't start with this, like Facebook magically appears on chain. In, in anything. The, the last thing that, that kind of like I find peculiar is that instead of the incentivization being at the base layer in, in base, it's abstracted away and in this gamified function in friend.tech. And that feels really inauthentic for like connecting on a social layer that you're, you know, it's ultimately this like recursive function of trying to to spin up money between each other. And there's lots of like, you know, there's lots of attack vectors there. And I really, I really have to say like, you know, there's a point where the community probably needs to start to have a more discerning eye to the things that Paradigm's putting out there. You know, uh, it's a like, it's a pretty consistent track record. And I think Nick Tomano is the only guy really like publicly calling it out, you know, 
FTX and then Blur. Blur was a, you know, a pirate attack on artist royalties, which, which really like detracted from high quality, fine art going on chain and has been net negative for the space. And I'm wondering if Frentech isn't going to be the exact same thing where it's another black eye that sets our whole community back by, you know, months, if not years and makes us look like, you know, the, the money grubbing grifters that Calacanis and various other folks outside of crypto are trying to paint us, which is not the case, right? There's so many examples of, of things that are amazing and really genuinely changing the world. And so I don't, I disagree fundamentally with, with like where incentives were abstracted to and, uh, and, you know, and obviously as a result, I'm not super excited about this, but I, over time, I think crypto social will, will be a thing. There's a lot there to unpack, but, um, and, and of course I'll get to blur in a second because I wasn't a best from blur, but and, I, and I'm curious actually to get your thoughts on, on this point that has, have, has it dissuade artists from more artists from coming on chain, but we'll get to that later. I, I want to touch on a point that you mentioned around tokens. Um, and look, base doesn't have a token yet. The Coinbase team has been very explicit that they, but I will say, like, you know, I I believe in in what I think we all can agree on that the value accrual, the token is a necessary component of of this space. Without it, it's sort of like a glorified database. And the token, because a lot of people like Cal Candace and your point say, why do you need to have a token? And and why does it need to be traded constantly? You're just it's a casino. It's like, no, wait a minute. It represents the ability to distribute value in an open source context to contributors. Full stop. Without a token, none of this works. And it allows you to incentivize and program things to, for the coordination of these trustless systems, all distributed and decentralized. Two different things, but you need to have a token in order to do that. At some part of the layer stack. Okay, fine. You, so we agree on that. Um, but I don't think it is necessary when I think about mainstream adoption. The normal, the normie out there Forget about the people that are like thinking about, hey, this is a speculation. And, and that's a whole part of this space, which I think is not wrong. Most people in crypto would have shied away from just saying, look, speculation is, 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 is real and it's necessary for any technological innovation. It fuels growth and whatever. But the normal user, when he goes to a restaurant and he is interacting on Twitter or these applications, is not thinking about value in, in the way that crypto delivers it. So whether you have a token or not, I don't think is a necessary prerequisite to attract users um, out of the gate. So I would, I would, and this is why I'm more bullish on base is, is where I'm trying to get at, which is I think that they'll be very competitive in onboarding people because there will be cool apps there because Tom, to your point, they just, they have the distribution. And so now I think you're going to get tokens higher up the stack, whether it's Frentech or this restaurant app or mm -hmm. all the DeFi apps that are now deploying on base. And that incremental incentive, once the user comes to crypto, is going to be like, oh, wow, this is great. But I think it, it's a paradigm shift in the thinking, which needs to be just because we have a token, that's not enough to attract the billions of users out there. It's like, what are you, that's not the faster, better, cheaper criteria that you need to have in the product. At a product level, we just need to make onboarding easier. We need to make the, the flow easier, the experience easier. And then, yeah, if you, have a, if you have a token, well, that's the added kind of the X plus Y, the Y element that you don't have in Web2. But 
for so long in this space, it's just been like, hey, there's a token, there's value accrual, you're going to participate in. I don't think that's enough. I think yeah. it's important for early community, but I don't think it's enough for main, to go yeah. mainstream. What do you yeah, think I, is the thing that they have? Sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, 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 it's okay. I, w- one thing I'll just to just to agree with both of you a little bit, like Ryan, you mentioned that there's a million L1s, L2s. Santi, you mentioned that you don't really need the token or you might need the token to attract users. I think base is super interesting from the consumer adoption standpoint because you don't have to worry about, you know, going to a new Cosmos chain, going to another ETH L2, bridging to, you know, XYZ L1. Like those steps are just so confusing for people. And I think if people can access an app just out of the gate, like we all want, like we all want this, but then again, we're all funding, you know, new L1s and new L2s all the time. Like it doesn't make any sense. Like if we're able to steward an L2 like base that has this great consumer appeal, it's super easy to onboard. Like that's the thesis. Like, let's just go with that. and Let's just focus on the apps built there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you think that it has Look, it's, no, it's no different than the smartphone. When you buy a smartphone, it comes preloaded with certain apps. Mm-hmm. Whether you like those apps or not, you can then go to the app store. And certainly there's restrictions in what Apple allows to be on that app store, as we all know. But at least that's, I think, the, the way I see this moment being so important for crypto. Because right now for a normal user, getting onboarded is is like, okay, what do I do in this like vast ocean of things? Like It's daunting, right? Um, whereas I think Coinbase will do that handholding experience where it's like, Hey, this is the curated set of apps for the normal kind of set of Coinbase users. And that's, that's great, I think. And then over time they get more, you know, familiar with how to, you know, work the system and kind of operate in this new paradigm world. And then that to your point, Ryan, they discover, Oh, wait a minute, I'm using an app right now that is not giving me many rewards. There's an alternative DEX or, you know, social media platform out here that gives me better rewards, has better features, yada, yada, yada. Like, there's no, there's a plethora of apps out there. Uh, you know, I, I, not that we need to go on a tangent of airdrops and how unsuccessful I think that we'll, we'll look back on some of these airdrop programs and be like, wow, that was incredibly expensive customer acquisition with terrible retention. And that's just going to be, is going to be pretty bad because if you look at the retention numbers, it's, it's not, you know, throwing airdrops to people is not enough to, to have them stick around. Yeah. yeah. What do you think that base has that say you can't find in the polygon ecosystem, for example, like polygon, it really surprises me. It's quite a, it's quite a conundrum in, you know, in the space right now where they continue to execute really well. There's, you know, now on the order of hundreds of games there, the apps for, for like onboarding and bridging are, are about as good a UI as you're going to see in the space. Um, there is sort of like relatively decentralized ownership. There's a really strong community there. They went and shipped um, ZK EVM with, with my, my brother, um, Jordi Bellina here, here across the street from us. Um, and you know, ZK EVM, unfortunately still has like hundreds of daily active users, you know, which begs the question of like, do people care about zero knowledge privacy? 
Um, you know, obviously Ryan, one, from a user perspective, no. I, I think the thing that but, Polygon but got really right have was BizDev. That we're not seeing in other ecosystems. Well, I, I think Polygon got the BizDev right. I think they, in a sea of technical people, they hired and executed on sales, marketing, and BizDev in a way nobody else did. Like they inked major partnerships. They were out here selling the chain. They acquired, I mean, remember Matic originally acquired Polygon and then Polygon acquired, was it Hermes? Was That was the ZK tag? Yeah, Hermes. Hermes yeah, was so like, like Jordy, was Jordy stuff. Was yeah, so they have a phenomenal track record of not only selling their own product to brands and users, but acquiring the tech that they need, which is also at the end of the day, sort of like sales. So I think that sets Polygon apart. Sure, today. but nobody would call that a, a like a financial success based on their early certainly not based on their early rounds, which were, you know, were pretty, pretty mm -hmm. like fully priced. You know, if, if, if base had a token right now, it'd be somewhere in the deck of billionaire valuation range. And yeah. I, and I'm kind of like still at this thing of like, what do they have that Polygon doesn't? Is it just that they have a centralized owner effectively? And it's like, they have the trust. Man, are they we just the going to give the, the money back to the banks and like forget they about crypto native value? They, oh, I mean, Ryan, uh, let me ask you a question. When people in America, if you were survey and in other jurisdictions where they're at, they are synonymous with crypto, whether we like it or not. I mean, it's, they th that's just the, the brand recognition that they command amongst outside crypto people. It's Coinbase. Right. So uh, you think of they're synonymous. This, this is a, and so I think it will look pretty silly in five, 10 years time that the whole issue of the space, which is something that I've thought about a lot, is that when we comment on the success of things, we are referencing for the most part, a token price, which is not really the most important thing. Unfortunately, it's the thing that we hold on to the most because it's a price. The problem with that is it's early stage. It's it's venture that, that, that is in full price discovery mode, even Bitcoin and Ethereum are in full price discovery mode. <laughs> And so the wild swings are highly distracting because if Polygon did the last one at a buck per token, and now it goes to 30, but they've signed all these BD deals and they have all these corporates onboarded. But like, unfortunately, most people are like, oh, it's dead. Like th this project is going to zero. And like, it's so, I, I think for, for most market commentators and investors, it's, it's just an unfortunate situation. But I mean, this is the state we're at, but you know, so many times we, we comment on things like play to earn and all these different things. I think price ultimately markets are efficient, especially I think in crypto, I do believe that there's efficiency in market to tell you if things are working or not. But I, I think there's a lot of emphasis on, on that. And so maybe, maybe like, look, there's been some apps like Uniswap that didn't have a token for such a long time, but they are, they just dominated and they continue to dominate. Um, I think there's a natural evolution of when you want to have a token. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, App Chain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff, that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right, Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team 
You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to permissionless, hit me up, let me know, shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. I don't think anybody cares about base being centralized. I don't think 99% of people care. I don't even think the people in crypto really care. I think eventually if they get fraud proofs down and people could like eventually roll back or like argue on chain if something goes wrong, sure. But for Coinbase's brand, I don't think they're ever in a million years going to cause an issue that would lead people to have to do that. So even in the edge case, I don't think it cares. So I don't know. I'm pretty bullish on it because I think it's just consumer adoption. And I think they will launch a token. I just think Coinbase corporate is never going to say that for the next five years, given the regulatory landscape. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I'm here for crypto native values and like, you know, lowering the Gini coefficient and uh decentralize decentralizing power and wealth among among network actors to make things community led and not uh centralized. So for me it's a it's a bit of a bastardization of of what we're trying to do here. Um but Ryan, but not, I get not it. to push back, but and, why, you know, why can't you make have money that on it? On base, though? Let me let me ask you a question, Ryan. Were you like back when back when Facebook announced Libra? Let's just go pro or con. Were you? Did you see that as similar? Like this is terrible. This is just going to co-opt a lot of the values, and people are going to think it's crypto, but it's not. Or Facebook launching Metaverse. Like, do you think that those two things are negative for the space? Yeah. Not only did I think it was negative, Facebook called us in at the time because there were. They're, you know, they wanted to, to, to collab with Polychain on, on the subject. And I told them that to their face at their campus, that this was <laughs> like totally against crypto native values. And they were what did they themselves. say? What was their they, pushback? They responded was- with like all these metrics of how Facebook's power was continuing to dominate the world. And I responded with the same thing that you and I talked about a few podcasts ago, that um, social network effects our dual power law, both on the way up and the way down. Um, and so like when they turn the curve, they'll, they'll also know. And so, yes, they're still on the dual power law going on the way up, but, but it's not as defensible as they think that they, they think they have. Um, yeah. Tom, what, what do you think of uh, something like Libra uh, and, or like the metaverse? I mean, we have like that. It's called PayPal. I'm with Ryan. I think Libra was a desperate attempt to try and save their business and lean into some clout. I don't think it was ever in the realm of decentralization or crypto. Um, and I mean, it failed pretty miserably, right? I mean, yeah. look, well, I, I will take, I'll take the opposite here because I, I, I'm very aware of that. It is not crypto, right? It is for a variety of reasons. It's not a perfect, but I will say one thing it is from a practical standpoint, I think of, is it going to move the needle, even centralized central bank digital currency? I think they're all positive in the sense that you stand uh, – my hope is that – and my thesis is once people get conditioned in using these things, digital native money and tokens and understand that, then they, their imaginations open up and, and say, okay, what else can we do here? And I think for base in particular, or if you get airdrop, you know, Libra, what was supposed to be, then you're like, okay – 
I think it's a higher probability to convince and convert that user that now has starts to forcibly, for better or for worse, has to understand how to use this technology. And it opens up this sort of Pandora's box to so many users. And so you hook him then and there. And, and the whole, pre- I, I think a lot of the thinking in crypto has been very binary in his, is it, it's either crypto or not. And I think it's a spectrum and a sequence of things for, for early adopters, I get it. But over time, I think, you know, um, I would argue that taking a more practical mindset of there's a progress and a journey that people need to take to get, to really understand the power of this technology. Now it might be a quick aha moment, Ryan, I know you're so close to artists. Like artists really get it very quickly because they're like, oh, you're telling me I don't have to go to gallery and sell my stuff through Sotheby's, which charge me an arm and a leg? Say no more. It's actually been the thing that I explain to people the most, this digital scarcity through art. Is NFTs have been beautiful because you can explain and crystallize this technology and the people that, that are in this industry get it very quickly. But but for so many others, I think it's going to be a work your way up, um, which is, hey, I have this thing, Libra, or the central bank digital currency. Wait a minute. What's going on in this other pocket that I hear rumblings on? Oh, oh okay. Well, it's pretty cool. Like, I want to get I want to interact with that. And my whole thing with 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 crypto is, is think about Montesquieu, like three layers of power. And there's checks and balances. I think crypto is that force tool, which is you're not going to blow up governments. You're not going to blow up Wall Street as we know it. But the ability to to quit the system, it introduces more competitiveness to political, economic, financial systems across the world because for a variety of reasons. And that increased competition is really good. It, it just creates a better system and, and actors within all the systems, legacy and new, start acting better because they know that if they are excessively greedy, people are going to leave whether it's they're going to leave their Venezuela to go to Colombia or they're going to leave Argentina. And so I think that's my view of crypto. It's not that we're going to blow up the world and, rec- and you know, rebuild new systems. It's more so you introduce more competitiveness in existing systems. And that's really positive. I think. Yeah. I, I, I look your, your view to kind of summarize here is that there will be two, you know, value and information, super highways. One that is like, compliant and probably easier to use and that will fit you know a mixture of these corporate things like like base but also central bank currencies and and things like that and then there will be a badlands where like bitcoin exists and like the fully decentralized yes. like crypto native values exist i think my point is uh i only want to spend my time energy and capital in the badlands because that is the most intellectually interesting as well as most profitable area to, to invest in agreed. both from like, hundred percent agreed, you know, time capital yeah. as well as, as financial capital is kind of my, the way that I look at it. So like all this other stuff like bridging web two and, and like, yeah, you know, but blah, so blah, Ryan, blah, like I, I agree with you that the most <laughs> interesting things happen in the badlands. Like you get the builders who could literally build new things without any, appeasement of what's been built or a boss or a bureaucracy or a company. Like I totally understand that the only uh, route Santi, I would agree with you on is the profit perspective becomes really lopsided to the base world. If they are able to actually onboard the amount of users that they want to then the apps built on base, because Mm -hmm. then the badlands becomes interesting, but much user 
or much lower on every metric versus a base eco that is successful. And I'm not saying it will be very successful. I'm just saying, you know, most of the people on base are not going to bridge over to the badlands, right? Just by definition, if yeah. they're the mass market of the US or the globe. Well, I mean, if you, yeah. if you give I, them I a lever and incentive, I think it's in the world, right? You incentivize the movement over, yeah. they'll get there. Right. Yeah. I, I, and that's, that's a good point, Ryan. I think fundamentally you have to believe that what is most exciting to me in this space and always has been is the possibility to constantly layer new incentive models and mechanisms to, and they really move people to, to drive and drive certain actions. It's been difficult because you're for so long, it's a very small subset of users that are using these systems. So running experiments on a low end that is neither large or sufficiently diversified is tricky. Back to my point on airdrop. So you, so, but I think over time, imagine a world where base on board, say 20, 30, 40, 50 million people, and they're all using these apps. I would argue that there is a, a subset of one, I think all the projects that are now obviously deploying, like all the DeFi protocols are deploying, deploying on base. And there's, and so that's positive for the space in and of itself. Because, um, hey, by the way, there's like 50 active users on DeFi on any given day, but now you have more. Now, is that, I, I recognize that it's happening on base. Not to get into a tangent of value accrual, like fat protocol thesis or app thesis or wherever you think. But I do think that it's hard for me to imagine a world where over time, something that has a ton of usage usually accrues some meaningful value. Yeah. And so I would think that if you have 50 orders of magnitude of users, it's going to certainly benefit Coinbase, but it will also benefit all the apps that you know are struggling for breadcrumbs of attention that are happening in every other chain. Um, and so naturally, if, if, if there's an incentive to bridge over, I think we got to talk about, you know, not, not maybe here, but over time, the bridging experience, users are not going to want to think about that. They're just going to use all these apps and however that gets settled in the back end is going to be a thing that, you know, no one thinks about. And, and, and protocol loyalty is not even going to be a thing for me. One thing I want to hit on, because like we're talking about two different worlds here of like the Badlands versus like this more business-esque Wall Street government approved world. I think the real thing for me is just being okay with like, at the edge versus like high compute, right? Like you can both like the breakdown between a user in the future, they could run a data availability sampling node on their phone for Celestia, right? They can also run the next version of a web three app on their phone. But the reality is the the hard compute, the big nodes, um, the builders in Ethereum, that's always going to be centralized. The ZK stuff is always going to have centralized compute because the fraud proofs, the verification is, is just way too big right now. So I think we need to break this into stuff that the user can run at the edge versus the stuff run in a centralized manner. And I think as long as the edge has control to fight or argue with the larger nodes, I think we're fine. So I don't know, that's the decentralization, centralization spectrum I think about a lot and it's far from fleshed out, but I think that's kind of the world we end up in. By the way, uh, Ryan, are you on Frentech? I'm not. I'm not. No. Yeah. I mean, I've looked Damn, at I it am. and a bunch of the team has played around with it, but like, you know, 
Uh, like I stop when it asks me to connect my Twitter. I'm like, yeah, yeah. No, uh, this is in a service area that I don't want to open up. So yeah. No. Ultimately, I want to try to lead by example by doing like the right thing and being in in things that are 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 pushing the space forward in a positive frame of mind. And I'm not sure that this is going to be seen in the long term as positive. The same way that very clearly Blur was not positive. Sure. The, the one thing, not to stay on it, but the one thing I did like was their workaround of the App Store. Just the ability to install, like, shortcut right on your phone from Safari. Yeah. You can access it. Like, that was a fantastic way to get around Apple's 30% tax and Apple's App Store, which I thought was phenomenal. Yeah. That'll definitely be common. For now. For now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For now. And, and it sounds like it's super easy to uh, to to get funds on, on it, right? It is easy. Yeah. So something good will come yep. out of this experiment. For sure. Bridging right. and just uh, this hack. All right, we have to move opposite. on or Ryan's going to fly here and shoot me. What are we going to yeah. next? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, well, let's talk about like the movement in ETFs and what that means for capital allocators in the space. And so, you know, obviously we're on the cusp of both, you know, both Bitcoin and uh, Ether ETFs being readily available within the next six months. I would argue that we're probably a year out from coherent regulation in the US anyways. And so like the Cambrian explosion is about, about to begin because markets are leading indicators, but just talking about the ETFs for a second. The second, so that's great. You know, it, it means that like there's going to be a lot of demand side pressure because a lot of institutions that would like to hold one or 2% for, you know, for uh, um, treasury management in, in mature crypto like Bitcoin and ETH can do so um, and do so very easily and at a low cost level. The interesting thing there is what happens to the plethora of uh, venture funds that are essentially just charging 220 to hold your ETH and your Bitcoin and maybe like a basket of like some other things, but, but, but there um, like I read a stat the other day that somewhere that approximately half of the 800 and 800 odd crypto funds that existed at the peak in 2021 have gone out of business. Does this mean that it has again uh, or more? And what do you guys think about that as capital allocators and how do you then propose, you know, novel creative fee structures for your LPs? I'll, I have some thoughts on the ETF and then maybe more stronger views on the large fund side. I'll go for the more interesting one, which is the larger fund side. I think larger funds that are just allocating to Ether, Bitcoin um, are toast. I always, I've always thought that. Um, I, and I also just don't think there's appetite in the market to effectively allocate billions of dollars from one single fund into the space right now. I think their game is just overlapping management fees, and I don't think it's outperformance on the carry side at all. Um, which look, if that's their game, that, that's fine to each their own. Oh, but, but that's such an I just, inelegant way to live. Like is that it's really it's boring to, to me. It's it's just like you're not you're you're more you're more interested in investor relations than you are in you know project relations, right? And it's just not interesting. Yeah. Um, I have views yeah, on playing the, for the, the two instead of the twenty is just a ridiculous way to to conduct yourself. Philosophically, do not disagree with you guys. I don't think that they go bust, at least not immediately. And I just look at traditional hedge funds. And large asset allocators that have just stopped playing the 20% game and optimized the 2% game because they realized, hey, you know, we could just 
scale this up by an order of magnitude and just play the two percent game. Um, and so I look. Uh, you could even argue. Well, I, I don't think I don't think they go away. Like look 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 at grayscale. I mean grayscale charts, and I, I would argue grayscale goes bust for sure. Um, well, they'll probably convert to an ETF, but. No, yeah, they, I mean they convert to an ETF and their and their cash flows get cut by three quarters or yeah. more, right? Because they got right. the ETF's got to have maybe twenty five bips of fees, fifteen bips of fees, um, tops, and and so they become a much much smaller entity. Um, I I, I want to ask though this because like this is an interesting thought experiment. Like to play devil's advocate on my own view here because we're all in agreement. If there is no place for large funds like mega funds, does that mean that as an industry, we haven't grown to a, or we're not growing to a level where we have that capital allocated in projects? Or does that mean that the projects themselves are doing capital formation directly to retail and their users? And it's not necessary. Like I'm hoping it's, yeah, I mean, which is it? I, I very much hope it's the, the latter and we, and we're able to just like crowdfund the vast majority of, of interesting innovation in this space and which will be much more, intellectually interesting. And what I think we're seeing across venture beyond crypto is that um, the era of the mega fund is over. You know, venture is a craft game. The right size for a, for a, a venture vehicle is between a hundred and $300 million. And, and beyond that, um, you know, somebody show me a fund on planet earth in the history of venture that raised over a billion dollars of initial LP capital that returned above three MOIC. Doesn't exist. There's a reason why Benchmark is the most successful venture fund across vintages because they've stuck and disciplined to, they've, they've, I think it's like 150 or 350. Yeah, like they've 350. never raised, they, every fund is the exact same number. Three, yeah. And that's it. Um, but you're right. Uh, look, I mean, I think a lot of people gave Sequoia um, shit for leaving, but I think it's to your point, Tom. I mean, they, they're, I don't. I think they're smart, and they they've said look, they, the opportunity set is not here for us to, yeah. to deploy meaningful chunks of capital, and so I respect that. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of things that I don't agree with, like like you know, but but that at least I think is is an honest assessment of where the industry is in terms of how much capital you can deploy. Yeah, the, the, one of my favorite structures that rolled out was, and I'm not an investor in it, and I don't know how they're doing right now, which was HydraDAO, which is just one large pool of capital at the top. And it rolls down into specific sub DAOs, and the sub DAOs are all led by. I'm pretty sure it was founders in their respective field, so they like have unique experience. They know exactly what the landscape is like. They can specialize. They don't have to worry about DeFi if they're doing infra. They don't have to worry about gaming if they're doing zk, and they can crush it. And then that rolls back up, and that was always my favorite um, way to do it. But from, you know, as we all know creating a venture fund around that scenario with like current laws and landscapes is pretty hard. Um, but yeah, I don't know. A I venture like DAO is a, is a failed experiment. Right. For now. Ryan, you do have I think we will here. get success in a venture Just, DAO, but all they were were front running experiments where people were participating in them with a nominal amount of money and then front running the shit out of the deal flow. Which is like, but the, the other thing I, mean, though, I would go as far as saying most, most DAOs are just failed experiments. It, it, people realize it's yeah. really hard to <laughs> run DAOs and governance and like, no, like you, you can't have a flat organizational structure. Guys, wake up! Like you need to have some hierarchy. And, yeah, you know, with no, like, with no one being paid. 
it Dow Dow's are probably in an industry <laughs> with terrible acronyms and misnomers. The Dow may be the worst one because I don't know a single one that's actually yeah. decentralized it, well, in any that, way autonomous or particularly well organized. The, the thing that was the thing that the reason why I like the special edition on sub DAOs versus the large investment DAOs is because 98, 99% of the people do not show up to vote. And the ones who do vote, only half of them are reading the IC docs. Like, it just doesn't scale with investment club like approach of people voting. It does, just doesn't work. We've changed. We've completely changed our fee structure. Um, you know, we're we're like a friends and family thing anyway. So we don't like our fee. Our fees are are way below market to begin with. But we've completely changed our fee structure to be like based on the yielding outperformance of ETH rather than than just like raw return. Because like, who's gonna just give you money to like hold ETH? Like that's, you know, that ship has sailed. So now you got to do something. Actually, uh, it's interesting. I, I think that fee structure is gene, like is the correct one here. Because are you outperforming the underlying? Like your hurdle yeah. is ETH plus staking yield, like, which is it's going to be pretty hard to outperform. Dude, like it's, it's hard to outperform ETH. Like, that is the most the elite like, bar it's, it's, in the game. Outperforming <laughs> ETH. Yeah. Which, by the way, most funds historically have not. I mean, it's an elite It's bar. hard. It is an elite bar. Well, what, what percent of investment yeah. oh, the, the thing managers... about the ETF, though, that I'm curious about is, like, you go. they don't outperform ETH. Like, probably yeah. 9 out of 10 don't outperform ETH, like, over a five-year oh, period. The, the interesting thing, I'm actually curious, I don't know this for a fact, but the ETF, how does the ETF factor in staking rewards from, like, proof of stake, like, for, for like, ETH? So three uh, this is the funny that. thing is I haven't seen a, a STE ETF, which is the, that's the winning ETF, it's like a dip. right? Well, there is, like, Ryan. The winning so, ETF has the yield on it. So 3IQ is a Portco and they're doing- It's, just, it's like a REIT, right? It's like a- yeah. yeah. That's huge. I mean, people don't appreciate like the venture-like growth profile of something like Ethereum of general compute. There's more apps get built. Plus the staking yield, like- my, like the market has not seen this type of product uh, out there. And it, it, it may remind me of just early days of REITs of just how widely popular they were in the market. Um, but of course, real estate growth prospects are much lower than, than technology. Yeah. I mean, so. if you go back a decade um, and look at like tech mega caps uh, to now, like kind of your, your Apple, Google, um, Amazon, uh, so, you know, fangs, so to speak, uh, over the course of the decade, uh, an intelligent basket of those, of those, um, companies returned about a 10 X and like, you know, how many venture funds returned 10 X such that somebody could have, you know, in consumer and, and web two, someone could have just, you know, owned a basket of those, uh, uh, of those mega techs and probably outperformed, you know, the vast majority of, of funds, especially the mega funds that charge the 330 instead of the 220 and, and are raising billions of dollars. We could be entering a decade where we see the same thing with ETH, um, where like at here, here at kind of 1600 plus a three and a half percent yield, you know, there's no like clear line of path for a, for a venture capitalist to like obviously outperform ETH over the next like five year period, right? ETH has got an easy 10x in it during that time you got to go and put some wins 
and some DPI on the on the table in order to to outperform that. That is a like I said, an elite bar to get over at this point. And now that it's commodified, yeah. you know, you can't just rely on family offices giving you money to to hold ETH and you get twenty percent of the upside. Right. That game, that that ship has sailed. Yeah. I one of the things that's interesting. And I think too that's is why like, the venture rounds have been as difficult as they have been. Right. You know. Yeah, the other thing is just the fee battle. Like the ETH. So we have Bitcoin, we have a Bitcoin futures product. My personal take is the next one is an ETH futures product, then a spot and grayscale converts at some point. But I mean, essentially the ETH products can offer like they're compete. The ETH futures products are now competing. The war on fees is already down to like 20 or 30 bips and it's obviously going to go lower, but that'll eventually flip positive. But I don't, I mean, they don't have to stake the entire lot of their ETH to be net zero in fees, right? Like they only need to stake five or 10% of the holdings to cover you know, whatever their fee is to flat out at zero without taking all the risk of staking their ETH. But the point is that when you go to Wall Street and you're offering, to Ryan, to your point, ETH exposure with no fee or potentially a gain, I mean, that becomes mm-hmm. incredible. But then we start to get into a scenario where the yield goes down. <laughs> uh, definitely. I mean, uh... programmable money is ultimately a, a race to perfect competition where economic profit may persist, but, or sorry, accounting profit may persist, but economic profit will be, will be obviated away. And I think we see that in, you know, in staking, we've seen that in DeFi, we've seen that in so many things. We, we, we move down that curve really quickly in this space. Yeah. I... Say, say more about that because I don't think people appreciate that nuance. You're saying like, there's a lot of consumer welfare, like consumer, sorry, not consumer benefit that gets created. And that trend, the value translates to the consumer, the end user, but that doesn't accrue to these historical gatekeepers that have captured this value because there's friction in the system and they have to gatekeep. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at say different types of yielding opportunities throughout the history of the space. So like, let's take mining as the, the particular example, you know, it's a race to perfect competition at a, at a relatively accelerated field or, 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 or pace right? Like mining took a little bit longer, but like DeFi, which is now, you know, like vanilla DeFi, if you don't have uh, like automation and a bunch of, 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 of software tools uh, protecting you, you know, you're getting lower than fed funds rate. Right. Um, Like it has, it, it, it has moved from DeFi summer where you're getting, you know, high double digit, triple, even triple digit yields to now where you're below feds, fed funds rate. Or, you know, mining where you're, I remember early days of mining, we were like, we were calculating profit per week because you had to turn over your, your rigs so fast, but you were making so much money that it didn't, it didn't really matter. You know, by the time 2015 hit, it was, you know, six, 8% yield, like CapEx businesses. Our space moves towards this, this equilibrium of, of near perfect competition where there could be a small profit. So for example, like ETFs will make money on the lending and yielding and, and they'll rehypothecate the, the capital that they have um, to, to have a business model. But you see this like this very aggressive movement towards perfect competition across the space in all areas, um, which I mean, is Ryan, really that's similar with MEV. I, I mean, like every time we see an MEV play or, or see a debate out in public, like most of the time, every argument is, look, you know, that, 
people are going to bid these bundles to do the arbitrage up to 99% of their profit. And they're going to give that all the way back to stakers or the protocol or something like that. Like it's a similar debate in the MEV world right now. For sure. I mean, early 21 was a party every day in MEV and now it is a slog, right? It's a slog. <laughs> um, so uh, I mean, that's just a characteristic of the, of the speed of our business. Yeah. I, I did a podcast recently with um, Hal Press, uh, ja or, uh, Scott Galloway and, and a couple other people. And one of the most interesting points I heard from Hal was that despite an ETF being somewhat inevitable, it really changes the aura of acceptance in crypto totally outside of the flows in general. So sure, the flows will be nice, but when everybody is able to buy it, it ushers in this acceptance and everybody is okay working for a crypto company. Everybody's okay pushing for new regulations. Everyone's okay holding the tokens. I thought that was a, you know, a kind of a nuanced point that I thought was kind of interesting for what it's worth. Curious if you guys agree. I mean, I am of the opinion that we are months, not years away from coherent regulation around widespread participation in crypto. And, uh, yeah. uh, and because markets are leading indicators, the market's going to respond to that already when it's on the horizon. Um, and you know, if, if nothing else, I think Gensler has gone next November because Trump is clearly taking the white house and, and, and Gensler's, you know, Democrat pocket. So, so that's out mm -hmm. the door and somebody else is going to come in. Um, and you know, since yeah. Trump made so much money on his NFTs, uh, <laughs> um, I assume he's got a little bit better perception of crypto at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think uh, we are, it, it's interesting, Brian, you and I both live in Europe and a lot of people don't appreciate, but the sentiment in Europe, which a lot of people criticize for not for being tech backwards looking is, is farther, like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's much more positive, particularly among more entrenched old family offices that look, I mean, I think at this point, every allocator of capital is, is known about the space they've already been educated on the space. Like we, they've gone through m multiple cycles. And to me, it was a bit of a shock because you would have thought, gosh, the amount of value destruction across Celsius, FTX, Voyager, Terra, you're like people, like we've set ourselves back, not a couple of years, like, like five, like a decade. Uh, and uh, to my surprise, that's not the case. And I think more, even mainstream media, like Bloomberg crypto, like they, they actually, the, the quality of reporting has gone up. Um, and, and they make the distinction between what is centralized blowups and actual crypto and, and the promise that it holds. So I'm actually quite, uh, to your point, Ryan, I, I do agree. Like we, we are closer and historically, I think even in the UK, like gold ETFs got approved there first, and then they got approved in the U S ultimately, I think it's going to happen that way. And, 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 you know, markets are highly efficient as, as soon as you see that and, and the amount of opportunities being left on the table, it pushes, it will push the U.S. To, to adopt a more coherent regulation. I think, you know, it's just going to take this coming election cycle to um, I, to run its course. And, and after that, I think we, we're going to have clear visibility. I mean, I was I was in your guys' camp that I thought we were going to get super clear regulation. And then this morning, there's like the Treasury or something in the U.S. having a time to dig into it, releases a document that like every NOSA safe holder is a broker, right? And like, like those are the types of, regs that are being proposed here that are like pretty dangerous to crypto and to see them still coming out kind of makes you think like are we actually moving forward as as fast as we think 
I will uh, two things. I will make a point that especially around election years, there is no shortage of politicians that want to come out ahead by putting it like inflammatory headline catching, grabbing stuff. But it is important to track the developments that are happening in the courts because the courts are ultimately the ones that tell you the interpretation and the, and how these things are going to be adopted. So I think it's overwhelming. I wouldn't say overwhelming, but the, the sentiment I think is quickly turning in Congress that particularly with the ripple case, you need clear rules and regulations. They're not going to be perfect ever. Meek is not perfect, but at least having a starting point so that you avoid the current status quo where it's regulation by enforcement um, is a vast improvement to unlocking everything, not just founders, but also capital allocators. Um, I think to Ryan's point, I think the ETF really solidifies that, which is this is an industry and asset class that is here to stay, whether you like it or not. Uh, we don't care, but it, there's there's money here, there's innovation, and, and, and that's going to happen. So, you know, I, I agree with you, Tom. It's sometimes like I pay too much attention on these headlines. I'm like, God. But um, I have faith in, particularly in the U.S., like the courts have, to my surprise, positively really just taken, peeled back, like, um, and, and just, like, been more favorable to crypto, like their interpretation of the law, securities laws, which need updating, but at least in, even in the current outdated framework, they've uh, they've been quite positive yeah. towards crypto. Yeah. So I, uh, that to me is... is I, I have faith indicator. in the uh, decentralization of wealth and power that create that crypto has caused, right? Ethereum, Ethereum spawned somewhere in the tens of thousands of millionaires. And those people are making political. It's the change. number one piece of technology in the history of the world yeah. that has created the most amount of diversified and distributed yeah. wealth. And those wow. people are writing checks to politicians and and telling them that they are single issue voters that care about this matter. And I I have to believe that you know core to American values is that the money talks, especially in politics. Yeah. And <laughs> we're getting that. The one thing I will say. The one thing I will say, guys, is I look at Uber as a prime example of something that, like crypto, got so much pushback because it bumped into the tax, like the, the taxi lobby groups that were very vocal against it. And they got shut down. They went into cities. They just plowed ahead. And ultimately, they succeeded. Why? Because it was a goddamn better product than a taxi. Like, you just cannot fight the consumer. And this is where... If this doesn't work in the next two, three years is because we failed on that point of delivering that because a lot of people still, when you go talk to them or say, show me like a good product out there that is not just like friend tech money wrapped to your point, grifting activity. And it's always the hardest, the softer point out of every discussion that you will have on crypto. It is, it is unfortunate, but it's a state of how early we are. Um, and unlike other movements of technology, it's like you can't move fast and break things. Like there needs cryptography has been in the works for so much. And so you have to be more meticulous in deploying these things and cautious. And so in my mind, it needs to be more social, more like not just money. No, yeah, no. I, I like your, I like your Uber example. That, that is a really good one. The, the one thing I'd say is like, I didn't realize how much I appreciated the U S's judicial system until this year. Like I straight up did not really put that much time or thought into it until this year. Like, like between, and I didn't really 
you know, it caught me off guard. I think last summer when the SEC started suing everybody they could, everybody that was like remotely even connected to crypto, good or bad. And I was like, well, you know, how the hell, do we just deal with this until we hopefully get a new chair or, or you know, Commissioner Purse gets a couple of, you know, two friends to help them decide on more cases. And, you know, with the pushback on the Ripple case with Coinbase, you know, really pushing in, I think Kraken should have pushed more, but I think it was a business decision. And now with the SEC and Grayscale, I'm those are like three of the main cases I'm tracking. And honestly, I'm not a lawyer, but I think they're pretty positive. Like if you go and listen to the Grayscale oral arguments, you know, versus the SEC, like, you know, go listen to them and let me know who you think won. We're at the hour mark, but I know, uh, Ryan, one of the things that um, you're really close on is this high-end art. And yeah, I think it's we should round it up. I always want to leave an episode with like positivity because we're in a bear market. People are always very dismissive. It's the end. And NFT is no different. Like a lot of NFTs are kind of going through like, and a lot of collections have gone crushed. You could argue that those were crappy art and should have never accrued the value that they did. But you've been super active. There's a whole pocket of the NFT world that I think is getting a lot of traction, but not enough attention. And you're really close to that. So maybe we just close it with that because uh, and, and comment on your experience. And, and Ryan, yeah, say how long, late you were up last night. How? <laughs> oh, I <laughs> doing mean, I slept an hour. I, I was not only up all night, I was so amped and amped up that I couldn't even sleep. But uh, and, and just to contextualize, so we were fortunate enough to win the um, the monument by Sam Spratt, you know, the monument really is a crossover between a lot of what I'm loving about fine digital art uh, on chain. Um, you know, so it's an extraordinary digital painting that took thousands of hours and a year. He worked on it every day for a year. Um, it has an incredible amount of detail. It's 70,000 pixels. We will display it in museums on massive, massive screens so that people can interact with it. And that's the other part is that it's a, it's a crypto game. So you could buy a, an addition, that addition gave you the right to make an observation on, on the work. And so it engaged a community, right? It, it, you know, people got really excited about it because they could participate in the art creation as well. And it kind of feels more like, like theirs as well. They have some small part in this. And these are the things that, that, that we really enjoy um, about this, you know, this generation of digital artists using crypto primitives to, to create a new class of collectors and really engage their community. We see this with people. Um, we see this with Rafiq Anadol. Um, you know, uh, our, our, our piece, um, from, from Rafiq is up at the MoMA right now and has broken every record that the MoMA has for average time in front of uh, a work, you know, in front of Starry Night, in front of wa Water Lilies, in front of every work ever. It reminds us that, you know, this remarkable digital art is one of the things that will bring people back to museums. And people are really getting excited about digital art. And the crucible moment for digital art, the like knee of the curve, has been the creation of digital scarcity, right? Before crypto, you know, if, if a digital artist like Rafiq or, or Beeple sold a piece, someone could copy it and, you know, you don't know who yeah. has the original. There was basically has, no way to. Has the copy, so, so it doesn't have any collectability. You know, NFTs conveyed that element of collectability which, and digital scarcity, which allowed digital artists to find 
artistic and financial freedom. And I find that really, really inspiring. You know, before Beeple sold every days for 69 million at Christie's, the highest he ever got for an everyday was $110. Um, and it shows like it, you need that collectability element to it. And so while we've seen a washout, uh, you know, a trough of disillusionment broadly in the NFT space, we see this pocket of really fine digital artists having pockets of success. And we see what we're seeing on the ground day to day is that global museums are leaning in to where the NFT community has left slack. So some of the biggest buyers right now of CryptoPunks, of really amazing, like fine digital art from like Rafiq and Mike and, and others um, have been global museums. Like that is, when you think about that, like that's mind blowing. The fact that like the people taking up Slack right now are, you know, the M pluses and the MoMAs and the Pompidou's and, and like really like substantial cultural institutions, cultural gatekeepers, um, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, and so I just find that like this, this space to be really interesting. I lean into these artists that are using crypto primitives and we're collaborating with a bunch of artists. You'll see a, over the next few months, a, a bunch of different projects that, that kind of like really use crypto in an interesting way to change the trajectory of the art over time and engage a community in that way. Um, and the monument ultimately, I think will you know, be seen in history as the turning point in that, that this was the first time that an artist really leveraged crypto primitives to add a new narrative to an incredible story, along with being just great art. Um, and so we're excited about it and we're excited about this movement. And, and I think it's going to catalyze a, an interesting comeback, at least for this pocket of NFTs. Ryan, how do you, what's the, what That's are the amazing. two groups there though? Like, so you have the one group where you're hoping that like the world sees this, the best collectors, the museums, but like, then there's the crypto side of this, which you want to interact with a game. I don't know as much about it, but yeah. Could you maybe just, could you just share more on the two different groups? Cause it's two very different worlds. there, coalescing around one piece of art. Yeah. So there's, you know, what we kind of refer to as the capital a art world. Um, and this is, you know, the auction houses, the, the, the museums, the, you know, the financiers, um, the, the collectors of, 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 of what we often refer to as traditional art, um, but is more, you know, more commonly referred to in that world as contemporary art. And they rightfully, you know, take a skeptical eye to things. I think throughout art history, that's been the case. People were really, you know, really skeptical about abstract expressionism, about photography. Every new movement is met with poo-poo from, from the art world. It's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, and then we have, you know, the crypto community who, uh, you know, who has engaged with a certain um, kind of like community element of art. So like obviously PFPs had a, had a certain moment um, and one of one digital art has had some like elements of success, but it's been really sort of isolated to a handful of artists, you know, Beeple, Rafiq Anadal, now Sam Spratt, um, uh, a few others. And the, the capital A art world has no interest whatsoever in like the collection stuff, the, the like social clubs of, you know, of like board apes or whatever. There is a little bit, uh, there is more respect for CryptoPunks as an isolated art project because of its originality. But other than that, no. What I think they are starting to, to wake up to is that 
digital art has and belongs uh, rightfully within art canon. And up until now, digital artists have not had the rightful place in art canon. You know, there is no digital artist who really has been like globally celebrated on the level of like a Jeff Koons or a, a Damien Hirst or, you know, or, or any contemporary master. And I think we're starting to see a sea change in that. And that is, that is culturally important. You know, I think it'll also be financially important, right? Like, you know, people who own Rafik Anadolis are going to do very well over the years because he's going to be seen as one of the defining artists of this generation. But more importantly, it's culturally important that digital art is art. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, I mean, you're the expert here, Ryan, but one thing that I always thought was kind of interesting was like, the great artists are celebrated years after they're dead. It seems like the great artists in the NFT world are being celebrated while they're alive. Um, I don't know what Which the is so amazing. reference there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a, for a lot of the skeptics and critics of the art world and, and a lot of times they criticize what is happening in digital art and saying that's not real art or whatnot but they don't have a full appreciation of how different art movements happen over time to your point, Ryan. But Picasso, I think went through an evolution of like not being very popular and during his lifetime, he painted so many different things and never got traction. Um, and he was very much a salesman mm -hmm. and like, you know, he did these clubs and like, you know, history repeats itself. And I think um, for what I found is, you know, people that really understand art have studied art, uh, throughout history have a finer appreciation for digital art and its place to your point line it's cultural relevance and as a movement in and of itself and it's really the more collectors that look have made money and be like hey i want to buy like a damon Hurst because you know that's what you do you want to or a coons because you know it's flashy and you put it on display and people will recognize it that camp is perhaps a little bit more skeptical but over time, it's always that. Like those people end up buying it two, three, four, in 10 years time, 20 years time. Um, and that's okay. That's normally how the art works, yeah. you know? No, I mean, uh, 100%. The, um, the art world moves slower than it should. And our space sometimes moves faster than it should. But one of the great things that like crypto native primitives have, have brought to, to digital artists is that, you know, they can tap a global market for the first time, right? Like if you have a Picasso on your wall, the chances that somebody is going to pass by it, love it enough to make you an offer and you're going to accept that offer, very, very remote, right? But the art that you hold on chain is essentially like available for sale at, at any time. And, and artists conceptually should get royalties. I think that's a topic for another, uh, uh, for another pod. But, yes. um, you know, we have a way of, of, of potentially like changing the, the business model and, and again, distributing more of the value to the artist. So it's a great movement for the artists. And that's why the, that's why great artists are leaning into it. And, and you can find really amazing artists making great digital art and NFTs um, in this moment. And that's what we're, that's what we're so excited about. Ryan, just one last question here. Can I mean, could you maybe share your views on the whole royalty debate in the art world? Because, like, 
OpenSea, Blur, like a lot. There's oh, like guys, a I gotta drop. This, this is a whole is this, this you know is a new pod. Or? I don't want to open that box. That's a topic oh. for another pod. We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll <laughs> we gotta save some stuff for another yeah. pod. We'll I don't know how long I have you. Controversial, and I gotta, I gotta sharpen my axe. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll start. You went hard at Blur, and that's okay. I respect all attempts at innovation, um, but at the same time, um, yeah, we'll unpack that in a, in a future episode. Stay tuned. I didn't know about the pre-existing Twitter debate. Let the here. record show that I am very much pro the inefficiency and the creator should be fairly compensated. I'll leave it at that, but there's nuance in this discussion and we should pick it up in next. I'm episode. actually You're super romantic. excited to, to, to be educated and really like think through this in an open-minded fashion from first principles. I I'm like, I've actually am very confident that you'll um, you'll have influence on the way that I see it. And I'm, I'm excited to go through that. This is fine guys. Until next time.